Thank you, Faye. Uh, just before sharing from God's Word with you this morning, something I would like to mention and forgot earlier, but uh, ask for your prayers. Um, you probably don't know my routine, but every quarter or so, I try to take kind of a full week and set it aside just for sermon study and preparation and just try to think ahead for the next 10 or 12 weeks or so. And, uh, and this week will be that week. I have several days in, in a place of it that's been made available. So I'm going to take advantage of that. So from Tuesday through actually Tuesday of next week, I'm going to be digging hard into the scriptures, the rest of Ephesians, and then thinking about what the fall will be and maybe Christmas as well. So uh, I'd ask for your prayers that um, I would rightly handle the word of truth as the scripture says of those who preach. So ask for your prayers for that. And now let's look at this scripture together. Lord, be our teacher today. The great symptom of sin, I'm calling it, in our culture, is alienation. It's kind of like pain being the great symptom of something like appendicitis. The pain isn't the problem, it's the symptom. And alienation isn't the problem It's the symptom. The problem is sin. In our hearts, in our world, the problem is sin. It's our rebellion against God. It's it's the wrong things, our wrong posture towards God. It's not living under his lordship. That is the problem. But the symptom, the, the great one, I think, in our culture is alienation. We live in a world that is alienated from one another, This hit home to me again just on Friday evening this week. I was at a function that the organization Toastmasters put on. Toastmasters is a group that teaches public speaking, helps you improve your public speaking skills. And I was at a function on Friday night that was a uh, kind of preparation for an international speaking contest. And so they had the guy who was going to represent this district internationally, and he gave two speeches, and several other people gave speeches as well that night. And in those speeches, there were six of them. One gal talked about her depression, and how she felt at one time that she could not tell it to her husband, that he wouldn't like her anymore. That's alienation, lack of trust. One mentioned just in passing the reality of divorce, a broken relationship. One guy talked about how in his work in the evening, his kid will come in and want to spend time with him, and he'll have to keep saying, no, 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 I'm trying to get some work done so I can give us what we need. Relational separation there. He told the story of uh, a man in South Africa four decades ago, Um, who experienced racial discrimination under apartheid. So in six speeches, four of them talked about or made reference to the reality of broken relationships, estrangement and alienation in some measure. I mean, it's so prevalent in our day and in our culture, it just shows up when we talk. And nor is it just personal. It's national, it's international, In my generation, the reality of the Iron Curtain, the color bar, the caste system in India, social hierarchy in the United Kingdom, slavery in the States, Islam versus the West today, Ireland, conflicts there in the Middle East. 
mean, you look anywhere in our culture and in our world, you will see this reality of alienation, people separated from each other, some form of conflict or estrangement or distance or something, which is strange because in our culture, we recognize that one of our deepest needs, if not our deepest need, is the need to belong, it's to be brought together to someone, to be in relationship with someone. Some psychologists call it the greatest need, the deepest need that we have, the need for belonging. Great need on one side, the great reality of alienation on the other side. And nor is this new for us, right? I mean, when sin enters the world, what is the first thing we see? Adam hides from God. No, that's the second thing we see. The first thing we see is that Adam and Eve suddenly feel shame. They recognize that they're naked, naked, and they, they make fig leaf clothes for themselves just to have any kind of barrier between them, cover their shame. Then they hide from God. Then Adam blames Eve. Then they're expelled from the garden. And then their children, one kills the other because he resents the favor of God on him. And all through history since then, there has been the reality of alienation and separation. We are walking through the book of Ephesians together this summer. And we have said in the very first message, the overview of the book, that what Ephesians is fundamentally about is the reality that in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and to each other. That's what the whole book is about. And we looked ahead briefly to Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God passage, and recognized that, that this is a warning to us that we need to be guarded and armed against Satan and the forces of evil because they actually want to try to tear us apart. What God is doing, reconciling, Satan is trying to do the opposite and tearing apart. And in our world, it seems like he is doing fairly well, fairly good. Ephesians chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, Paul talks about God's reconciling us to himself, first of all, because that's where it starts. We can't be reconciled to each other in any meaningful way unless we are reconciled to God, first of all. So Ephesians talks about our being forgiven, our having redemption through the blood of Christ, our being adopted as sons, and then God giving us so many spiritual blessings in Christ. It talks about how we were... Uh, by nature, children of wrath, but God has given us mercy. We were dead in sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. The whole first part of Ephesians, right through the 10th verse, which Faith started with this morning, of chapter 2, right up until that point, it's about God reconciling us to himself. Now the book makes a shift and says, okay, therefore, let's talk about being reconciled to each other as well. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. When somebody is going to be baptized or give a testimony in front of the church, um, what I often tell them is for the sake of simplicity and power and clarity, to break your testimony into three major chunks. And they could be small, but these are the three main parts. First, talk about before. Life before Christ. And then talk about Jesus. When Jesus entered in, or you got, you got connected and be aware of him, when you... When you came to the point of, of acknowledgement and bowing the knee to Christ. And then third, then talk about after. You know, the difference in life now that Jesus is at the center. Before, Jesus, after. Any good testimony will, will do that. This passage does that. 
Talks about before, talks about Jesus, and talks about after. Remember that formerly, but Christ, now, is how the passage does it. And in this passage, we see basically that on the cross, Jesus destroyed the hostility, that's the Bible's word, the hostility that alienated us from God and each other. Put another way, the big idea of this text, very simply, by Jesus' death, we are made family with God and with each other. The whole big idea of the text. By Jesus' death, we are made family with God and with each other. He starts with before. Verses 11 and 12, he uses the word remember two times. Therefore, remember, think back to before. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember. We must never lose sight of the before. Never lose sight of the fact that we were once dead in sin, children of wrath. I went to Liberia about a year ago and learned a little bit of the history of the country. Uh, Liberia in Africa was founded as a country when freed slaves from the United States were resettled back on the coast, the west coast of Africa. And their history is such that once they resettled, they actually gained a leadership very quickly of the native population of the country of Liberia, and in fact, quickly became oppressive to the natives. And I'm struck by the fact that the oppressed became the oppressor when they had the opportunity to do that. It's not uncommon, by the way. But if the oppressed could remember what it was like to be oppressed, would they become the oppressor? We need to remember what we once were. Remember our own slavery so that we don't enslave others. And for us, too, we need to remember what it was like to be alienated from God and each other, lost in our sins. If we don't remember, this is what happens. We take grace for granted and love little. If we don't know what we were forgiven of, we'll have a low view of the grace of God. And also, if we don't remember, we will look down on others in their lostness. We're cynical and angry of the sins in the world around us. I remember Ron Glazer talking here maybe eight months ago or so in response to a presentation by the Mustard Seed. Mustard Seed had been here and as part of the presentation had just shown on the screen a picture of a homeless man on the street. And Ron said at that time, the Holy Spirit said to him, you know what, Ron, that's you. Reminding him of his own spiritual homelessness and lostness. And that's a word for me and for us. Remember, we used to be homeless and far from God. We need to remember and Paul addresses now the, Gen, the, the Ephesians and addresses them as Gentiles, as non-Jews, right? Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and we are Gentiles, so this is for us. And he says that before, there were three things. They were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
and they were strangers to the covenants of the promise. It is God's word to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations through whom the world would be blessed. The covenants to Moses where the people of Israel formally made vows and became God's people and God was their God. And all kinds of promises and expectations attached to that. But the Gentiles, the Ephesians, were excluded from that. They were outside. They were not part of the people of God. And therefore, because of that, they were also without hope, the text says, and without God. The Greek word without God is the word atheist. Not somebody who doesn't think there's a God, but somebody for whom literally there's no God. They were without God, and therefore without hope. The Ephesians were profoundly religious, but they were without God because to be separated from Christ is to be without God. 1 John chapter 2, whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father. And therefore, they were alienated from God's people as well. Unity with God and unity with his people go together. That, that was the reality. That was the before. Without hope, because they were excluded from the promises. God had, God had called a people to be his own people to whom he would reveal himself and through whom he'd reveal himself to the world. But God was in a unique relationship with the Jews, the people of Israel, and the Gentiles were outside of that relationship. Now, God had done that on purpose. God had set apart a people for himself so that he could show, show the world what it looked like for a people to have him as their God. It was an honor and a privilege, but the Jews turned it into a reason for hostility and superiority which was not what it was meant to be. It was meant to be the revelation of God. So the Ephesians, the Gentiles, us, separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, outside of the promise, the covenant of God. It does not get any worse than that. Remember. Do you remember? Um, Do you remember... Your life before Jesus. I remember. I remember growing up in church. I remember going to a Christian grade school and Christian high school. But I sure remember being separate from Christ. Alienated from God and his people. Not rebellious and wicked, but insecure, fearful, lustful, self-focused in every way. I remember, and it's not a happy memory. Verse 13, but now, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near. Used to be separated, alienated, now brought near. In Christ, the the effects of sin are reversed. Brought near to whom? Well, first of all, to God's people. Verse 14, he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. 
the dividing wall of hostility. In the temple in Jerusalem, uh, it was set up in such a way that there were various sections in the temple. And there was a courtyard for the Gentiles. For God-fearing Gentiles, they could come to the temple. But they had a particular area that was for them. And there was a wall, there was a barrier that they could not cross. And the section on the other side was for Jews only. And there were signs on the wall that said, if you enter the, if you're a Gentile and you enter past this wall and enter the court of the Jews, you are responsible for your own death. In other words, we will kill you and it'll be your fault. There was a barrier, a wall of hostility that separated God's people from the Gentiles, Jews from the Greeks. The Greeks could not pass. And in fact, Paul is writing this book while he's in prison. He was arrested in Jerusalem because the mob saw him with an Ephesian person named Trophimus and thought that Paul had brought him past the wall and into the Jewish court. And so they tried to beat the snot out of Paul, have him killed. He was arrested, sent to Rome, and he wrote this. Paul knew that wall of hostility and knew just how hostile the hostility was. But Christ has abolished that wall of hostility, that separation the barrier between God's people and others. And he did it by abolishing the law. Paul says the law of commandments and ordinances. In the beginning of this section, you remember, Paul talks about the Gentiles calling them the uncircumcised. That is their, that is their name. That's what they're called by those who are circumcised which is made in the flesh by hands. Circumcision was a law. It was a ceremonial law by which the men were marked physically as the people of God. And it, that, that mark of distinction became such a source of pride for the Jewish people that to be uncircumcised was to them an insult. Right? David called Goliath that uncircumcised. The ceremonial law became a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. But now Christ has abolished that law. There is no longer the physical separation between Jew and Gentile. They're reconciled. God had initiated separation to reveal himself, but it had become a basis for hostility, and that expressed itself primarily in the thoughts about circumcision. But what Christ has done by abolishing that wall of hostility is, again, in this text, he has made the two Jew, Gentile, one. Now there's just Christian. Galatians chapter 3, there's no longer male and female, Jew and Greek, Jew and barbarian, slave or free. The barriers are broken down in Christ. The walls of hostility are broken down in Christ. We are reconciled to each other in Christ. We are brought near to each other. And also we are brought near, he says again, to God. Verse 16. That Christ might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, as one person. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, killing the hostility. Did you know that there was hostility between us and God? Not just from us to God. But between us, it was a mutual hostility. Did you know that? 
hostility on our part because we were rebellious against God. We said, we don't want you to be Lord. I'll be Lord. And hostility from God toward us because of his wrath toward sin. There was a real anger from God towards humanity, towards me, towards you. It was really there. It was a real wall. It was a real barrier. This mutual hostility that Christ has killed, thereby killing the hostility. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? He hasn't just removed it. He's killed it. He's obliterated it. He's put it to death. It has no life or power anymore. This barrier between us and God. That's what Christ has done, and we have to know that it is what Christ has done. The centrality of Christ in this passage, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, he says again. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh. He didn't just sort of do it. It was in him, in his flesh, by his death, that he abolished the wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man, place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is something that Christ has done. This is what God's word says about Jesus, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that there is no other name by which we may be saved, that his death for us was a ransom, that it's his blood that makes us holy, that he bore our sin that we might bear his righteousness, that in him, just in Ephesians, we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have adoption. The Bible says that who doesn't have Jesus doesn't have God, and who doesn't have Jesus doesn't have life, that through Christ we have Grace and peace and access to the Father. That in Jesus' blood is the new covenant, the new contract relationship between God and his people. A couple years back, my kids were really into the solar system. And the solar system is a fascinating thing. Trillions of kilometers of space filled with, we used to think nine planets, now apparently 11 and an asteroid belt, and comets, and dust, and all kinds of things out there. And in the center of it all, the sun. And if you're on Pluto, the sun just looks like a tiny point of light, brighter than the other stars, but a tiny point of light. And yet, the sun is 99.9 or 99.7% of all of the mass and matter in the solar system. And there's another solar system and it had all kinds of things in common with ours. It had planets and rings and comets and dust and meteorites and asteroids and solar wind and all this stuff. You might think that it was like the same solar system, but if it doesn't have the sun in common, if it gets the sun wrong, it gets 99% of it wrong. And if we get Jesus wrong, we get 99% of it all wrong. Jesus is the center. It's his Mass that holds us all in orbit, that has the gospel hang together. Christ, the center. God has done this in Christ and through his death, particularly. 
that it was on the cross that these walls of hostility were broken down. Remember, at one time, you Gentiles, 21st century Calgary, you were once separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, outsiders, excluded from the promises of God, his covenant. But Christ has broken down the wall of hostility that separated us from each other, from God, has bound us together to make one where there was division before, by his flesh, in his flesh, by the cross. And now after, so what? What's different now? This is what's different. Paul uses three metaphors. The metaphor of the state, he says, but now, verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. That's a political word. That's a state word. Citizens with the saints. Second metaphor, the metaphor of family and members of the household of God. Right? The, the community of God's people, the family, those who live together in a home, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, again, being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole, third metaphor, structure, building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Three pictures. We are citizens now with God's people. We've taken the citizenship exam, and we're now officially Christians, God's people. Family, we're a part of his household. And together, we're being built together as a temple, as a building in which God can live. Notice the progression between those three things. Citizens. You live now in God's realm. You're part of God's country. But it's better than that. Household, you actually live in God's family. It's not just living on the premises. You're part of his family. But it's better than that. The temple, God actually lives in you. Together as the temple of God. <coughs> For a thousand years in Jewish history, the temple had been the focal point of the Jews' identity as God's people. But now there's a new people and a new temple, and they're the same. The people are the temple. The temple had been a basis for separation, I say again, but now in Christ, there's unity. Now here's the bottom line. What does this mean? Very simple. No... K-N-O-W, know that you belong. And then also, help others know that they belong. Know that you belong and help others know that they belong. Doesn't mean help others feel like they belong, but help them know that they do belong. And there's a difference there. This is what John Stott says about this passage. He says, we erect new barriers in place of the ones Christ demolished. Personal barriers and conflicts, group barriers of race, class, tribalism, denominationalism, traditionalism. Sure, there are natural barriers of language and culture, but they're not barriers to unity. 
And if we deliberately perpetuate these barriers or even acquiesce to them, we sin. And then he says this, it is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus abolished the old divisions while we tolerate racial or social or other barriers within the church fellowship. I'm not saying that a church must be perfect before it can preach the gospel, but I am saying that it cannot preach the gospel while acquiescing in its imperfections. We know that we're not perfect. But we also need to know, must know, that the things that keep us apart, if we continue in them consciously, constitute sin for us. And it keeps us from preaching the gospel with integrity. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. The reality that Gentiles have in Christ been given full and equal status as God's people. Full and equal. In chapter 3, Paul makes reference four times to a mystery. In verse 3 and 4 and 6 and verse 9, and also in chapter 1, verse 9. And he says that the mystery, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery that was hidden for centuries and now made known is that Gentiles now have full status as God's people. Question is, why is that a mystery? That's not new information. Right from the get-go, God had said to Abraham, you know, through you I'm going to bless everybody, everybody in the world. The prophets had repeatedly said, you know, one day there's going to come a time when the Gentiles are literally going to stream into Jerusalem to hear the word of God as worshipers of God's people. I will call them my people. So there's no mystery. But for the Jews, for the Jews, they thought that the prophecies had left room for a sense of superiority for them. That the Jews would always be first among equals. But the mystery is that the Gentiles have been given full status on level ground with God's people. That's the mystery. Nobody expected that. Nobody expected God in Christ to make one person out of Jew and Gentiles. The mystery is that they would be God's people on an equal footing, full unity, full status, with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. In chapter 3, verse 10, this is what Paul says. Verse 9. The plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, here it is, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, that by doing this, by bringing people together and reconciling us to himself, that this is the way in which God is glorified in the heavenly places. That his wisdom will be made known in the heavenly places by his doing that. 
So for us, alienated from God and his people, in Christ Jesus, brought together to one another and to him, this glorifies God and makes his wisdom known. That's what all of Ephesians is about, God glorifying himself by doing this. Two things really quickly, reminders to you. You belong. You belong. And it is very easy for us to think that maybe we don't, that maybe everyone else does, but God doesn't know this about me. You know, I struggle with reading. I should read more. God's really disappointed in me. I still have issues with this particular sin over here. I don't belong. I still got to do that little extra before God will really embrace me. You belong. It's the idea of being home, being a round peg in a round hole. You belong. God loves you and welcomes you in Christ. He tore down the wall of hostility. He put it to death. It's not something you put to death. Jesus did it. You belong. And then secondly, remember that we need to help others know that they belong. Those who are in Christ belong. They belong with us as members of a body. Each part needs the other. And we need to help people know that they belong. To foster and fight for this sense of unity. To not have people feel like they're excluded because they wear this or have this tattoo or are of this nationality or because their testimony includes these kinds of things or because they're that much older than I am or that much younger than I am or they listen to this or whatever. We need to help others know that they belong as much as we do. And if we find ourselves thinking right now about somebody else who needs to help me know that I belong, we're missing the point. Never hear a sermon thinking that the people around me need to hear it. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. You belong, and we need to help others know that they belong. How do you do that? Encourage, pray for, love, cut slack, and give grace. Honor one another. Look out for their interests. Help them know that they belong in Christ, that we are one in Christ. Not just nice Christian language, but really, we are one in Christ with full status as God's people. May that be an encouragement and a challenge for us, but God in his grace will help us live that reality out as we fix ourselves upon him in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, the hostility between us was very real. And I would not want to be in the path of your hostility when your wrath is exercised. Thank you for Jesus and his death. 
which paid for my sins, bore my punishment, killed the wall of hostility, destroyed the work of the evil forces, made a mockery of them, made me holy, and reconciled me to you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that, for being obedient to your Father and loving toward us. Help us to have our eyes open that we might see the privileges of having full status as your people, to know the privilege of living on your territory, being a part of your family and having you yourself live in us as you make us your own sacred space. And help us to love one another, to be bound together in deep unity, carrying each other's burdens, speaking truth in love, making way for each other, helping each other, challenging each other, and loving each other all the way through. Bind us together as one people in Christ. Speak your word to us this morning. Let what you have for us settle in and bear fruit in our lives. For the glory of Christ and the sake of our ministry to the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.